Hello, everyone. I am Jason Hobbs, and with me, as always, I have my co-hosts, Eric Hoffman. Hello. And Jose, the panhandler Lacario. Hello, everyone. And this... I didn't get a nickname. You, the Hoff, that's it. That's all you got. Oh, what, yeah. I mean, you want something else? No, it's good. Bearded Wonder looks older than he is. <laughs> <laughs> and this is Hex Talk, Jose. <laughs> Special effects this time. I didn't have a song ready. Oh, next. No, sorry. All right. So we're not going to mess around with introductions. I know that you guys heard us in our last episode two weeks ago uh, or last year. And uh, we're going to get right into the last sessions, AAR. And Eric's going to start telling us what that is again, because I've already forgotten. After action report. Right. The after action report. And, uh, B being as organized as I am, I'm the first one. I see here that I have an after action report from October of 2018. And uh, it was the last time I ran a Forlorn Shores game. And uh, the action was pretty hot and heavy. And the group went straight to the Tumulus Summit. It was uh, where the big statue is overturned there. It was the first appearance of the Crabman hybrids, uh, the Frogmen. And uh, I guess I have a question here for you, Eric and Jose, about BX and what do you do when you cast light on the eyes, Eric? Oh, I don't have my rules out. I think it's uh, it it specifically has it in there. It says uh, blinds them, right? Saving throw, we're blinded. Yeah, in basic, it says you're blinded, and but when you are blinded, you can't do anything. Yes, you're right, and I believe expert has a uh, an update to that rule. But I don't remember what it is. I'll look it up. Okay. So here's my second question, Jose. What if you put light on the eyes of a zombie? Uh, I think if you put uh, if you put light on the eyes of a zombie, I would think it would blind them as well. Because uh, unless you make that assumption that zombies aren't seeing you and they're sensing you, you have to assume that blinding a zombie would work. What about a skeleton then? That's a good question. I think it's the same thing. I think as I mean, if if you want to try to apply logic, you have to say that if skeletons are seeing you, which in my games they're seeing you, so blinding a skeleton would work, then it works. If you think they're just sensing you, uh, then that, of course, uh, opens up a host of other things. That means they, uh, of course, will be immune to illusions most likely as well. So those are things to consider. So we all know Jose is a player's GM and Hoffman is in the middle and I hate players. What do you think, Hoff? <laughs> so, um, so I just looked it up. Expert does not uh, say, does not soften that. It says, first of all, if cast an opponent's eyes, it will cause blindness until canceled or until the duration is reached. So, um, so two things on that. One is kind of the historical view is that like in early editions of the game, specifically like OD&D, there's all these rules for quote unquote monsters, right? And it's just any kind of anything in the dungeon is a monster, right? That's not a player. And in OD&D, for example, all monsters can see completely in the dark with no problem. And they they can all, I think, automatically move through any door in the dungeon. So like, it doesn't matter that the door's locked. It's like none of that comes into play, right? It was it was much more procedural board gamey, you know, is, is some of the rules. And that kind of carries on into, into BX, right? Because it's really just a compilation of the OD&D first three books so this goes back to you know what is the osr right which you know I, <laughs> it, um and, and I one of the I was main things that is, up. <laughs> yeah like let's just talk about that again you know um 
you know, it's rulings, not rules, right? So every, you know, the GM's going to have to just make that up because you're right. It doesn't make any sense that skeletons are blinded by light, you know, unless they're revved up like a deuce. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yes. But yeah, I mean, you know, whatever. (laughs) Awesome. I would probably say specifically to undead and and specifically the cleric cast it, I would still let it work, right? Because it's, you know. uh, Holy light. Yeah, right? Why not? Okay. Awesome. Uh, that was a good conversation already. I'm so glad we're doing this. What about you, Eric? You got any AARs to talk about? It's yeah. We, wow. We've really gone a long time. Um, these were all, I ran a bunch of games kind of at the end of last year. I want to say like pre Thanksgiving. Cause I, we didn't do a lot of holiday gaming. Everybody was really busy. Um, mm-hmm. we, had, we had a family vacation. So that really kind of like kiboshed all my big time holiday gaming plans. Um, but uh, back in the day, we had a couple of games where there was more exploration, specifically of the hedge maze. There were kind of a big realization that the players realized that once they got off of, well, they kind of figured out that they were kind of basic 10 by 10 geomorphs, right? And once they got off the main entrance geomorph, what was on the other side of that changed when they went back. So they've realized that the hedge maze, a la harry potter shifts and changes and isn't always the same way twice so so that was one big thing that was figured out and then they cracked a treasure room one of the kind of the the staples of west march's play of the pockets of danger and treasure within areas where they otherwise wouldn't be and um the players really smartly cracked a uh, treasure room that had uh some really tough undead level draining undead and uh and animated statues that were you know, really low armor class for low level characters. So they did lose some players, but they were able to get away with some pretty powerful early uh, magic items, uh, armor of a long dead uh, warrior king. And they also learned a little bit more about the history of the hedge maze too. Nice. What about you, Jose? Um, I I ran more recently. I think uh, I may have talked uh, in the last Hex talk about my desire to have uh, either um, uh, a geomorphic area like Eric is running or to have a mega dungeon. So I went with the option uh, B, which was the mega dungeon. And I've added a uh, pretty well-known and popular uh, mega dungeon by a certain Michael Curtis in my area. And uh, I've already got it all mapped out. And recently the players went in there and uh, explored the gatehouse and the area surrounding the dungeon. And uh, now it's going to be available anytime they, uh, they want it. And that was my idea was adding a mega dungeon like that, especially because I had run it previously. As a matter of fact, that's the first time we played together is you played in uh, my mega dungeon uh, Thursdays back about six years ago. I was just going to say that back with Jose in the <laughs> stone hell. That's right. Yeah. And oh, there's the secret. The secret's out at stone. Oh, sorry. And uh, I already had all the maps and everything. So it was a, a pretty simple matter, of course, to import it and, and give it a background. So it, it makes for a place that I can run anytime people want to uh, go into the forlorn shores. I would, uh, I would kind of say that's cheating, but you're running and I haven't been. So it, it works. <laughs> Any comments on that, Hoff? No, no. <laughs> All right. Well, let's move on to the next segment. Toll the bells for the dead. So we have some fallen characters. Uh, Pete has a couple here, but I only talk about the ones that died in my game, the summit to the tumulus <laughs> nosage cuff, uh, which is a fine name. If you uh, spell that out, uh, his character fell off the summit of the tumulus and uh, expired. Toll the bell. 
Cody, his character Tholium also died in that session, holding the line in the evergreen wetlands. I think like his leg had been bitten off or something. So it was pretty crazy that he made it that far. Toll the bell for Cody Tholium. Uh, these next two look like yours, Eric. Yeah, Pete lost another guy, Boars, in the uh, I think we hardly knew ye. He died in that uh, the crack of the the tomb that had the wraith in it. So that was one of the undead that was in there. And then also, then they they left some treasure as they were running. They had to drop some treasure, and um, they went back for it in another session. And actually, Boars killed Todd McGowan's <laughs> character Ravenar because Boars had turned into a wraith and was guarding a helmet that uh, that now Thaddeus' character owns, uh, which is a pretty powerful little magic item for commanding and uh and getting followers nice so who says this one jose you or me you were running oh yeah we had a character uh jebediah die from an iron cobra the cobra bit him and he uh he got poisoned and uh, i see a note in our uh in our outline about rules for sucking out the poison i i assume it's been a while i think that was an older session when they were going through the ruined temple on their way to try to find the ziggurat but I think I let them have a chance to someone tried to suck out the poison and have a chance of getting poisoned themselves to give him another save. And he still failed it. I think he failed like four saves because yep. he also had a juicy fruit. Yep. Ah, uh, yes. Which is what our little nickname for this little fruit we found that is like a minor antidote helps with poison saves. Exactly. And uh, but yeah, so we gave him I gave him a couple of chances, but Jebediah was doomed to die that day. No kidding. And he's like had already made like 10 poison saves before that in jose's dungeon of poison pit save or die <laughs> yeah the poison pit <laughs> uh alas poor jebediah so yes he was the original character one of the original three that went into the very first hedge maze in the forlorn shores my poor character and i swore to never play forlorn shores again after that <laughs> so far so good <laughs> All right, so that's uh, all of the AAR stuff, it looks like. And now we have a main topic. Uh, one of the things that uh, we've been talking about uh, that um, people talk about uh, as far as sandboxes in general and specifically uh, hex crawls is this concept of generating players' interest in what's happening. Um, sometimes in these games, it seems like uh, you can play them really beer and pretzels where the idea of I don't think anything about my character until I turn on my PC and sit down and then all I'm going to do is find something, kill it and take all of its stuff. So what do you think, Eric? What do we think about this? That's a fine way to play if that's what you enjoy. Um, <laughs> it, you know, and a lot, you know, a lot of players do. Uh, it's, you know, some people just don't want to do more than that. And I don't know that I always want to do more than that, but generating interest in the sandbox is uh got some ideas but clearly we're not doing a good job we can't generate Hobbs's interest in the sandbox to play it so <laughs> that isn't true i'm just a busy guy so it looks like we had some ideas here jose these must have been yours you want to talk about them yeah what one of the ideas is uh for generating interesting locations is coming up with um ideas that stretch uh the usual dungeon just a hole in the ground or or, or something like that. And, and we had some ideas. Obviously, the Tumulus is one of those where you have uh, different vectors for play. You have the top, you have the outside, you have the various caves. Same thing with the Hedge Maze. The Hedge Maze is a perfect example. It's a, uh, it's a shifting geomorphic landscape 
which allows Eric to kind of swap in and out of uh, various items, maybe things he wants to test or things he's really fond of. And then uh, another idea that I've brought out is the Shifting Sands idea, which is me stealing his uh, hedge maze idea. Um, there's going to be a, a similar kind of geomorphic uh, ability in the southern shores where the shifting sands behind the ziggurat will reveal various locations um, as I'm ready for them to re be revealed. Um, and otherwise they would be hidden. It can never hurt to have more because as we're all well aware, uh, players sometimes will just want to go somewhere else or you'll be ready to run something else. And so then you already have something kind of ready made or at least an idea to work with. So uh, I think that's a good idea. Uh, do you have anything to add about that, Eric? Yeah, I'm a big fan of the, uh, as we've been talking a lot the last couple of years, and and Paul Wolf and I have threatened to actually put a product together. And I guess we've actually paid some people for writing and art. So <laughs> we either have to do it now or just take a loss. <clears throat> but the whole gist of the of the product is going to be, you know, interesting locations, right? Where it's uh, Gabor Lux coined the term, good vanilla, which we're, you know, Gabor's going to maybe participate in the project and I'm stealing the term regardless. But it's the idea that you can use just kind of basic fantasy tropes. But um, if you put enough work and thought into the adventure and the location, um, you can use regular kinds of monsters and just make the environment really interesting. Uh, allow the environment to add its own challenges that the, either enhance the monster or enhance the players to take on bigger monsters if they kind of figure it out. Things like that. So the Hedge Maze um, I had previously published uh, in the um, Dookie of Vaughnwall. <laughs> Pete Spons, uh, it's the Duke of Vaughnwall. He did a special edition with like 10 authors all added in an adventure. So I know Matt Jackson did one and I don't remember everybody else, but there was a bunch of OSR authors and I did like a ruined aqueduct and you guys play, play tested that in the old campaign. Um, so it's like, it was different, right? It was just like, well, what? that's a very different kind of adventure location. And it had its own challenges and then its own hooks into the world, right? It was like, well, wait a minute, what if we get the, the uh, aqueduct working again? What happens, right? And that's a, uh, the idea behind that is that it's different than just a dungeon where you're a static or dungeons don't have these static, but it's just there, right? You clear it out and then maybe it gets restocked. Maybe it doesn't, maybe you go back, maybe you don't, but it's just a dungeon, right? And it's kind of uh, taking the good vanilla to the next level where the locations themselves be generate new adventures. Yeah, that's a great idea. Another uh, aspect of good vanilla that I, I'm really fond of is the idea that you can easily use it in any sort of campaign there's a lot of other works uh out there that are common or uh popular in the osr which are weird enough uh, i call them the art house <laughs> weird enough that it's not easy to put them into uh, a regular game like uh stonehell is a perfect example of something being good vanilla where it doesn't people would sometimes call it vanilla D, &D but this is the good variety because it's easily used and it also is um, unique, right? It's not something commonly found everywhere, but you still can use it within a vanilla campaign, which strangely enough, people still have today. <laughs> I think you, I think you make a good point there. And I, and I think one of the, uh, the ideas about good vanilla that I like is a, uh, an, a setting or a piece of uh, a material that is good vanilla, quote unquote, doesn't make any big alterations or presumptions upon your campaign. You can throw a ruined aqueduct in anywhere, and it doesn't make a presumption about your campaign that alters 
what your campaign is about. Or That's one of the nice things about Good Vanilla is you can drop it in. Um, it'll be cool and it'll be interesting, but it doesn't alter the landscape of what you fill. Yeah, I was going to say that there's, um, there's a, I, you know, for me anyway, it's kind of come full circle. The OSR is, you know, who knows what's going to happen in the future, but we went through the Gonzo phase and that was very cool. And God knows I took advantage of it and wrote stuff that was Gonzo and, you know, in the whole DCC vein and treasure vaults is certainly not good vanilla, but um, it's not too out there. There's way more out there. Right. But yeah, the, the not making the assumptions and even you know, in the early OSR, it didn't get published till later, but you know, one of the beginnings of the OSR is the Grognardia blog and Dwimmer Mount, right? It was James Mazalewski talking about Dwimmer Mount. Um, and when that finally came out and you read it, that makes some pretty big assumptions yes. about what's going on in your campaign world, um, especially if you're a dwarf, right? Yeah, I mean, it's like, sure. um, you know, it, it just, it's, and that was cool. It was his campaign world, but you can't really drop Dwimmer Mount into, a, into your own. And, and it's right in the beginning, right? You read about how the dwarves are different and they basically, they, procreate differently than we expect them to and if you do that when i read that i was like wait a minute well that's in the first like 10 pages of this or whatever i can't trust that what's in the rest of this mega dungeon can be used in my campaign like i'm either going to run a dwimmer mount campaign or not use this product and i never ran a dwimmer mount campaign so i never used that product and so that's kind of you know we're really off the tangent here on good vanilla, but I think that's really kind of the, it, it's not just using boring monsters, right? I, you know, I, it's, um, <laughs> or, you know, that's not it, right? It's, it's, it's exactly what Jose said. It's not doing anything in the, the adventure or the dungeon or whatever. That's going to make a sweeping changes to somebody else's existing campaign world. Yeah. And that's great. Uh, I, when you started talking about that, it reminded me of the tent pole dungeon and not knowing what that means, but uh, I'm not, maybe we'll add, we'll talk about that later if we have time. All right. So uh, another idea that we had. So if your players trying to generate interest, so they have something to latch onto to give it uh, some more oomph maybe in the game to help create that emergent story that we talk about so often is this gated location as goals. I'm pretty sure you put this in here, Eric, you want to talk about it? Yeah, wow, we've been a long time since we wrote this. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> wrote this, but oh yeah, so so yeah, so one of the things we have in Forlorn Shores is that the main city, which is like the nothing happens in right, it's West Marches, so everything's outside the city, is on a small island in the center of like a massive bay with islands around it, right? And all the adventure is out in those regions. So to get to it, you have to take these like chartered uh, or regular sh shipping, right? So. There are vessels that go to these certain places every once in a while to like gather lumber or gather fruit. And so you can hitch a ride on one of those. And there's some that go less frequently and cost more. So it's like, well, you have to like get a little bit of scratch together before you can go on the red shipping lanes because they cost more money. Or you could charter your own for a lot more money or for a lot, lot, lot more money. You can buy your own boat and go wherever the hell you want, whenever the hell you want. And so it's, it requires virtually no effort on the GM's part other than to change the color of the icon on the map. But it gives a goal for the players to say, hey, you know, there's this part of the island over there we can't get to unless we pay 100 gold pieces to get there. Let's do some research, try and find out what rumors are over there. Let's make that a goal that when we're fourth level, we're going to save up our money and we're going to go there. And so that's a reason to adventure. And as a GM, you don't have to have anything there yet until they get enough money together to go there, right? Or until they, if it's a really gated area, like they have to buy their own ship first. I mean, you can drop fabulous tales of El Dorado and wait till their seventh, eighth level before they have enough for a war galley. And then they can say, all right, we're going to go there after we buy the war galley. Then you can figure out what's there. It's a great way to 
generate player interest without generating GM work. <laughs> Which I'm all about. <laughs> you have anything to add, Jose? Uh, no, I think he covered it pretty sufficiently. It's a it's it's a nice way, like you say, to give the players something to aim for. And I like the idea of having those El Dorados visible, uh, especially if when they're on the way to your uh, black colored shipping lanes that are a gold piece, you can show them maybe, you know, say, hey, there's this inlet. It looks super dangerous. None of the captains will go there. If you get your own ship, you can go there. But in the jungle, you can see hints you know, of alabaster buildings or something like that and a glint of silver, you know, give them a visual so that they have a reason to save up that money and not spend it on carousing or whatever they're going to do so that they can go back there with their own ship. Yeah, you have a bunch of sunken ships there, but you can see the city of gold through the jungle. (laughs) Yeah, and plundering the ships as a location too. Good idea, write that down. Nice. (laughs) All right, so... uh, uh, we looks like we're talking about legitimate starting hooks. So I think it is an OSR, even before OSR, it's really just an old school idea of using rumors, but sometimes the rumors would be false. But uh, it sounds like we're talking about something else here. Don't necessarily give false rumors, give specific and then some generally true rumors as well. I think Eric's going to talk about an example. Yeah, so I think that's a, a big part. If you look in like the old TSR modules, there's always a rumor table in the front and it's virtually useless, right? I'm sure it was fun yes. to write. It's fun <laughs> to read as a GM, but like nothing is ever like nothing ever has like become a plan that someone can act on based on those rumor tables. And they're random too. So you don't even know which one you're gonna get, right? And uh and they're just you know, it's definitely something that they had fun with. I remember in the Keep on the Borderlands one is like free yark means <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I know it was Brie Yark. It means it means welcome to dinner. It means like we're friends. And anyway, and it was the opposite of what it meant, whatever, you know, and it was a little funny thing, but useless. Uh, so the idea is to give, you know, things that are legitimate, like, hey, you know, everybody knows that there's the hedge maze over there and there's a little bit of the history and, you know, there's legit treasure there if you can just go get it. The uh, the great example from which I, you know, I always go back and I read the Ars Ludi blog post that uh, about West marches all the time because it's so good and uh, he had the Abbott study it was like right in a starting area basically where it was a monastery and it was pretty low level stuff I forget maybe goblins probably goblins and spiders just like Mirkwood but uh, when you got to the top level or whatever there was the Abbott study and it was locked and it was trapped and um, it was really hard to get into and a lot of people died trying to get into it I did the same thing in my West marches campaign I stole it right from him I it was an Abbott study and uh, I think four first level thieves lost their lives being exploded by a magical trap to get into this place. But when they finally got in, it was full of, you know, legit magic items that it was probably a little bit above the level that they would have, um, you know, otherwise accumulated by that point. But it was a nice little reward. It was a nice big reward that uh, was was kind of worth the effort. The The juice was definitely worth the squeeze. Yeah, it kind of goes back to that having uh, closed areas within other areas uh, and people engaging and trying to get through that makes it's just one more thing for the players to uh, engage isn't the word I want to use, but just to vest in that setting or that uh, that sandbox that you've created. Anything to add, Jose? Um, yeah, the only, I like that idea of rumors or hints or like, uh, for instance, in the Southern Shores, I mean, it's easy to give them to give the players hooks if you actually hand them a hook. Like, for instance, I let them find a key, 
and it's a big black iron key. And they were able to find out that that key most likely goes to something in the red ziggurat. Well, now they have a reason to go to the red ziggurat. I've given them the hook. They have it in their hands. They know they can use it there. It'll give them a reason to get there when they finally can. Right now, the sands are swirling and they can't go. But if it, when it, if and when it clears, they they have a tangible uh, draw to that location. Yeah, that's that's a very powerful tool. And uh, it seems like we were going to talk briefly about how important it is for the players to share information. So this really kind of uh, lends itself better if you have multiple groups of players. And if they all find out things, but they never say it or they never put it in a community location, the other groups never know about it. And so they don't have that added interest or motivation to go to these places where like, Hey, these guys found this, but they only got this part out of it. And there was this locked door at the top level. Our group should go over there and see what it was. What do you think about that? Jose, any thoughts? Uh, I think there's probably two schools to that. Um, You could play that. You could play that in the same vein where if players aren't discussing it amongst themselves then their characters aren't discussing it amongst themselves either, it would be, uh, it would be easy to assume that if, uh, Group A, which is three distinct players, um, later forms another group, Group B, with a player or two of that group. And those groups don't share that information. Their characters didn't share that information, too, because it's kind of player as character in, in the old school. So if they're not sharing the information, that you, know, you won't know about that door at the top, that locked door. But um, if you do hear about it, then maybe you can, uh, you can crib their treasure. Eric? Yeah, I really like the idea. We've never quite gotten it off the ground, but I really like the idea of multiple groups of players or shifting groups of players creating the verisimilitude of the of the world. I think that's really cool. And you do you did it or did it or are doing it with your uh, Kalmata game probably more successfully than we've ever done with Forlorn Shores because we really haven't grown the player base or separated enough, I should say. We haven't we haven't run enough games in some ways, I think, and I know I haven't either. As far as Kalmata goes, they have finally started like a group journal, and it's very hard for me not to correct things or change things. But what they write on there, I find fascinating what they decide, you know, when a new place opens up and what they decide to say or whatever they remember is uh, is really interesting. And uh, it's it definitely adds something. And it makes the people want to find out. I've always said in the whole campaign, whatever you know as a player, your character can know. And if if you're on your fifth character, then, you know, this guy just uh, heard a lot more rumors than your first guy did. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Yeah, you know, I I did have this going pretty successfully in that in that West Marches game I ran online years ago. And we had we used a wiki, the uh, Obsidian Portal. Uh, before it went through the reforger and kind of broke everything. But my players were pretty decently, some of them anyway, were really into writing up, uh, at least taking notes, right? It's easy because you could just go into the wiki for that place and just write stuff. And it was funny, sometimes it was wrong. And um, I know I did a lot of it as a player. I was one of three GMs in that. And I would uh, even include my maps um, and post them to the wiki. And it it was fun. Some people got into like writing journals and character and posting that in the forum which was a whole nother way to kind of engage with the campaign. And, and that was pretty neat. I think we even did a thing where you got experience points if you did something along those lines. So that kind of gave a reason for people to do that. And, you know, they got, it was interesting. It's like, 
it's like that game where you, uh, what's it called? Telephone, telegraph, where you, you say something to someone and then they say it. And when it gets around the room, it's completely different. And they would start that too. And so these like legends grew up about someone would mishear what someone else said or wrote about a location. And I can't, I can't think of any good examples, but, and they were just dead wrong. Like <laughs> I, I remember one, they wouldn't go back to, they wouldn't go back to the, there was this beginning area. It was like a EL2 area, right? Which is really low level. It was called the Ratlin Bog. But like the first group that went in there got just shellacked by something. And even though the area was pretty simple, it wasn't that too many tough things there. The main creature there uh, that could hurt you really didn't care about you. So it was actually pretty easy to go through there, but people would avoid it like the plague. They would go all the way dip around through the way worse area to get to the other side of the Ratlin Bog, even though if they took a riverboat through the Ratlin Bog, like almost the chances on the wandering encounter that something would happen to you was almost nil. And it persisted through the end of the campaign, even when some of those players became GMs and then could look at the <laughs> encounter tables in the Ratlin Bog and they still wouldn't go through it. It was uh, it was just it was an interesting thing. And um, which I mean, it was too bad, too sad for me because I had some pretty cool uh, locations in there that no one ever bothered to go to. Yeah, that's pretty cool. You kind of had the same thing in the Keeper on the Borderlands game when we ran into those, like that one powerful skeleton at the Abbey or something. We're like, nope, not going back. And I could tell you're like, you know, it's not that tough. You guys are probably fine. And a lot of people were like, yeah, you, let's go do it. And I'd be like, nope, nope, we're not going back there. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> uh, yeah. That's awesome. Uh, Jose, you got any last words concerning that before we get into this uh, listener email? Uh, I do not. Awesome. All right. So Zach commenting on the website. Thanks for that. Oh, wait, before I do that, I did want to say Jose is going to add a wiki and we're going to have an event list. So we'll be able to have something like this for Forlorn Shores on the Audio Dungeon website. Right, Jose? Yeah, I'm going to add, I like, I forgot about the wiki, so I'm going to add a wiki. I'm in the process now of finishing up testing and configuring forums. The discord is really nice because it gives us a quick ad hoc discussion. We have a lot of people on our discord now. But I'd like a place, especially for people running campaigns, where they can pin messages that are easy to see and have a little bit more permanence so that uh, campaign docs, anything like that. And then we're also going to have a wiki, and I'm going to try to put an event calendar in for people registered on the site. Awesome, and that'll be great. Here we go. Zach on Hex Talk 5. Hey, guys, just wanted to say that I love the podcast and that it and you all have given me the push I needed to get going on a hex crawl of my own. I've always been enamored with the Isle of Dread, and I enjoy the new Tomb of Annihilation adventure from Watsi as well. When I heard Hobbs talking up the treasure vaults of Zadabad, I decided to pick that up as well. Lo and behold, it is also awesome. Told you. So I've decided to combine my favorite parts of all three. I'm using the original Isle of Dread map, but replacing some of the keyed encounters with my favorite things from each module. I have a few queries, though. First, do you have a suggestion for region size, or do you usually let geography dictate? Second, hazards, do you suggest this being its own table or part of the regional encounters? And uh, also, suggestions would be awesome. Keep up the great work, guys. I'm enjoying every minute of it. So, Eric, let's start with you. What do you think about this question concerning region size? Well, that, that's an interesting one that, uh, given his narrative there, he's using the map from Isle of Dread, which... The, I believe it's true. Um, I think I might have even asked uh, Zeb Cook about it, but they actually got that wrong. The original, it's it's 
30 times bigger than it's supposed to be because somebody thought one mile was six miles. And so the hexes were supposed to be one mile hexes and then they got changed to six mile hexes. So I guess that means it's 36 times bigger than it's supposed to be. Right. And uh, if you ever look at it on the map of uh, what's that grand dookie of Caramico's and that's not the world, but um, anyway, if you look at it on the map, it's south there. And the, <laughs> the Isle of Dread is as big as like, Oh, the mainland. Because it was <laughs> back in the day of TSR, somebody transposed something. Anyway, so Carl and I talked a lot about that when we did the the treasure vaults, and that's how I looked up that story. And we we did the obvious. We basically made ours the the size that the Isle of Dread was supposed to be, roughly. And I uh, actually counted hexes and measured it, and we we did the map differently, but we we fit into the basic parameters. So you know, I don't know region size. I mean, then, and then also, I'm not sure if he's talking about like region size, how we talk about the regions are, um, in, inside the sandbox. I'm thinking that's what he's talking about. Yeah. Cause he says, do you usually let geography dictate? So like, you know, this river to this mountain range or what? Yeah, I usually do. I mean, if it's too big, I'll split it up. And, and actually when I did the forlorn, my re my area in the forlorn shores, which is, we, we call it a region, but within that I've broken it up into different regions. They're pretty small. I would say, um, for the most part, geography dictates, but then if it was a really large, I would put a river in there specifically to split it up or some other feature or just make one area more wooded and one more grassland so that, I, I mean, I, I guess I didn't really think about this when I was designing it, but a good rule would be, you know, some, you want to be able to at least, you don't want to be able to travel through it in less than a day because then it, you, just, you just blow by it, right? You know, you should be able to experience it and probably a couple of days travel to get through a region. So that way it feels different enough from the ones around it. That's interesting. So uh, I know that I basically just did it by geography in Forlorn Shores. In Kalmada, I did the same, but I do have a couple locations that I decided were, you know, powerful enough that they could change the environment around them. So then that region would, the, the encounter tables would change just because of that location almost. Like one of them, in the original uh, Treasure Vaults of Zadabad, you have the, uh, I can't even remember. It's like the elephant creature. What, how do you say that word, Eric? Uh, the main guy at the end? No, no, no. The actual dinosaur type thing. Oh, God, I don't remember. Yeah, the prehistoric platypus plat something or other. Platypus plat belladon or something. Belladon, yeah, there's a graveyard, and I actually added some stuff in that graveyard, and so it's large enough to encompass some of the areas around it. So mostly I think your regions are going to be affected by the geography, but it is possible like if some places have something about them that they could, you know, it would just be like a three-mile hex around that or something like that, or a three-hex area around that location. Yeah, any thoughts on that, Jose? Yeah, I think it's a good idea. Most of the time, you're gonna let uh, you're gonna let the geography dictate your region. Um, a lot of times, it's just simple because if if let's say if you're breaking up your regions by geography, you can have specific plants and animals for your coastal region, and then for your grassland region, you can have specific things. The only time you'd probably want to like, for instance, the you'd want to break up your coastal region is if you had a reason to. Like, for instance, if you wanted like the southern region to have a certain type of native uh, or creature there that isn't present in your other areas, and it's had, like Hobbes has said, a tangible effect on that area, then split that region up, even though it's in the same geography, so that you can uh, show those differences to the players when it's time. But otherwise, usually it's easiest, and it's um, not just for you, but for the players to really understand is if it's geographically split like that. 
Yeah. And that's a fun way to have those insurgencies from one area to another where you can kind of, as a GM say, yep, something's happening in this other area. These people are pushing out farther or something like that. And then that can create uh, hooks for players to latch onto if they so desire, which we've covered multiple times, I think in X talk before, but <laughs> what about hazards? Do you suggest this being its own table or part of the regional encounters? Eric. I've done both. I don't, I don't think it really matters. I mean, right now what I've landed on after a lot of running and designing these kind of encounter tables is kind of a, a layered approach. So I, we've shared it before. It's up on the show notes of the last episode, I think, but the chart I use, you roll once for the hex and you can get nothing. You can get a wandering monster. You can get a monster lair. You can get a hazard. You can get a hazard and a wandering monster, a hazard and a lair and, or an adventure account, whatever. And depending on what you're doing in that hex, there's, the percentages for those shift, right? So, uh, and it also shifts if it's been civilized, if some of the, if it's been partly cleared. So I kind of like that. And then I would go to a hazard table to roll the hazard. Let's just say I got a hazard. I would go to the hazard table that was separate. If I got a hazard and a wandering monster, I would go to each of those tables separately. And so it just, it's, it's kind of quick. It's easy. It kind of all fits on the one spreadsheet that we can open up in a Google doc and, and go from there. And, and that's just how I'm doing it now. But I've done it where the hazards are just on the uh, – in the other campaign I ran a long time ago, it was just a percentile wandering encounter table, like the old AD&D wandering encounter table. And some of those just happened to be a hazard. Um, and some of them were rolled twice, right? So it was just kind of – it was all in one table. I just did it this way because what I found was then I can reuse those um, – I can reuse those same beginning tables – on what you run into, and then I can just plug in the tables that I want to use. So I can use a, a grassland hazard table when you're in the grassland. I can do, have another one for woods, and um, so it's just more modular, and I can reuse them. So even though the wandering monsters in the lower woods are, you know, like goblins and spiders and stuff, and then in the sylvan woods, it's, you know, centaurs and elves and stuff, I can use the same hazard table, so I can just kind of plug and play those, and it's easier. It's just the poop piles are bigger for centaurs. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Jose, you got any thoughts on these uh, uh, regional encounters and hazards? Yeah, for, for hazards, I can see there's a couple ways to do it. Um, if you if you don't have a lot of hazards or a lot of other like non-monster encounters enough to fill a table, then I would say go ahead and throw them into your wandering monster table so that you're not rolling on one or two things. But once you have enough, uh, like Eric said, to break them out into their own table, you have enough hazards that give flavor and you have enough non-monster encounters that can be separate. I like the idea of breaking them out into their own tables because then at those times when you specifically want a hazard, you don't want to roll, you're like, time for a hazard. You have that table and it's separate. You don't have to fish through another table. Same thing with non-monster encounters. Sometimes you just want to throw out some flavor. It's been a while. Uh, they just, you know, they just came out of a, a rest or whatever it might be. So you want a non-monster encounter, you have a separate table for that. So once you have enough of those things to make their own tables, oftentimes it's really useful to have them that way so that you can use them separately. Yeah. Uh, this wasn't in Forlorn Shores, but recently running um, Kalmata, I had a hazard in the jungle and, uh, they ended up spotting it ahead of time. So it still slowed them down, but they had a choice to move on through, you know, the uh, quicksand area or not. And then that pushed them. So it's actually helps more and gives the players feel like they have more agency to make some decisions on what they want to do. 
And that's why the hazards, I think, are such a cool thing. Sometimes they'll, you know, you'll lose rations or you'll lose half of your ammunition or whatever. But other times it may not necessarily do anything but cost them time or give them ideas of things they may want to do in the future. It's like in Star, you know, in Star Wars when they head into the asteroid belt or something to try and get rid of some people. So if they know they're getting chased next time by uh, the goat men of the village and it's really bad, they can just head into the the <laughs> quagmire area and then try and get rid of them. So it's just more things to give the players agency and like, even like Jose said, fluff or something to add to bring vermicillitude to the setting. Uh, we kind of went on for a while. Eric, you haven't talked in a while. Is there anything that you wanted to talk about that? No, I think we're, we've covered that pretty well. The only thing is I came up with something really funny that uh, I'm going to share, and that is that uh, Michael Curtis was good vanilla before ice cream was cool. <laughs> <laughs> I almost feel like I should ask you to explain that, but it won't be as funny. No, we were talking about it a while ago, and I thought of it, and I just uh, wanted to share that. <laughs> awesome. All right, so I think we've kind of uh, met our time, so let's uh, – if someone wanted to talk about your hazards with you, Jose, uh, how would they get in touch with you? Uh, for the next uh, few weeks, they could probably catch me on Google Plus until that thing takes the big old bombola. But after that, they could uh, find me on MeWe. I think I have a Twitter, so they could tweet me a FaceTime or whatever, however that works. Tweet you a FaceTime. You're dead to me. What about you, Eric? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I haven't, uh, I, I moved over to MeWe, um, so I'm just Eric Hoffman there. And, uh, yeah, Google's going away. It's kind of sad. We'll see. We'll see what happens to our little community once it gets fragmented. Come visit us at Audio Dungeon, though. Yeah, come to the Audio Dungeon Discord, but not Eric because he's a Luddite as far as uh, Discord goes. Uh, we we also have a uh, Hex Talk podcast Twitter. Uh, you can reach me at, uh, at Hobbs Indeed or at OSRN Hobbs on the Twits FaceTimes. <laughs> You can reach uh, Jose on ICQ. Just look for Russian Mafia. That's right. Uh, and uh, as always, uh, we have the AudioDungeon.com, uh, which Hex Talk is a part of. Any last words, Jose? Uh, be kind and be friendly. Mm, wow. So nice. I thought that we would have something a little harsher because, you know, this is the toxic OSR. What about you, Hoffman? I know I can count on you. I fully disagree with Jose. I think you should be friendly and then be kind. I'll go with that. (laughs) (laughs) I don't agree to that. (laughs) And as always, I agree with neither of these two and both of them simultaneously. (laughs) This is us. He's at GaryCon, except for Jose, because he wimped out. Yeah, come to GaryCon. We're going to run Forlorn Shores there. All you got to do is come up to Eric, and he can run it at any time. Any time. Knock on my hotel room door (laughs) at any time of day or night. Any time. Especially if there's a sock on the knob. <laughs> what the doorknob he meant. <laughs> I guess. Uh. Hex talk. Good night, everybody. This podcast is a member of the Audio Dungeon Podcast Network. For more podcasts, visit audiodungeon.com.